You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. And now, a message from Cyberbit. Mastering cybersecurity is like mastering a sport. You build muscle memory through rigorous practice. Then you train as a team to foster cohesion while operating under pressure. Like athletes, cybersecurity professionals thrive on hands-on simulation. But traditional courses, certifications, and open-source labs won't build you a winning team. You need Cyberbit. Cyberbit offers a hyper-realistic simulation environment for your SOC, IR, and C-suite to refine your skills. All using the market-leading SIMs, EDRs, firewalls, and WAFs they use every day. Cyberbit is offering CyberWire listeners a free live fire exercise. Sign up your team now at cyberbit.com slash cyberwire. Emotet ups its game. COVID-19 small business grants as fish bait. Google Translate is spoofed for credential harvesting. Research on the Budworm Espionage Group. Kevin McGee from Microsoft shares why cybersecurity professionals should join company boards. Our guest is Chris Nickel from Okta with a look at identity shortfalls. And internet outages during missile strikes and the prospects of Russia's hybrid war. the CyberWire studios at Data Tribe. I'm Dave Bittner with your CyberWire summary for Thursday, October 13th, 2022. ESET researchers tweeted yesterday that the criminal operators of Emotet have been improving their product's system info module, with changes that enable malware operators to improve the targeting of specific victims and distinguish tracking bots from real users. They've also changed the system attributes Emotet collects and reports back to its command and control. The new list includes processor brand, size of physical memory in megabytes, and an approximate percentage of it being in use. Inky has published a report on the use of small business grants as phishing lures— Scammers are impersonating the U.S. Small Business Administration to distribute phony grant applications hosted on Google Forms. The SBA has stopped accepting applications for COVID-19 relief, but the scammers are counting on their victims having overlooked that. The Google Form asks the user to submit their personal and financial information, including their social security number, driver's license details, and bank account information. The usual marks of a scam are present, as well as Google's Report Abuse button and its customary warning, never submit passwords through Google Forms. Those last two don't normally find their way into phishing scams. Researchers at Avanon describe phishing emails that are impersonating Google Translate in order to steal users' email credentials. The emails inform users that they have pending incoming emails, and they'll need to confirm their account within 48 hours in order to receive the emails. If the user clicks the links, they'll be taken to a phony Google Translate page with a login field. 
Avanon's researchers explain, in the background, you can see the HTML that goes into turning this site into a Google Translate lookalike. One of the JavaScript commands they use is the unescape function. This is a classic command that helps obfuscate the true meaning of the page. Further, when decoding the JavaScript, you'll see that the security service would see a bunch of gibberish. The phishing page looks fairly convincing, but users should note that the phishing page's URL looks very suspicious. Ending with translate.goog doesn't quite cut it. The Symantec Threadhunter team this morning released research on the Budworm cyber espionage group. Budworm has recently been observed targeting a Middle Eastern government, a multinational electronics manufacturer, a U.S. state legislature, and a hospital in Southeast Asia. The group leverages Log4J vulnerabilities to compromise Apache Tomcat for installation of web shells. Budworm makes extensive use of Hyperbro malware, often installed through DLL sideloading. This involves attackers placing a malicious DLL file where a legitimate one can be expected. The payload is executed when the application runs. Budworm has also been seen using CyberArk Viewfinity, an endpoint privilege management tool to sideload, while Hyperbro has been Budworm's primary choice recently. Researchers have also observed the PlugX CorePlug Trojan in use. The group has historically targeted Asia, the Middle East, and Europe, but has now, for the second time, been linked to an attack on a U.S. target. Researchers say that the shift to U.S. targets could mean a directional change for Budworm. Also known as APT-27 or Emissary Panda, Budworm is generally believed to operate on behalf of the Chinese government, according to the Hacker News and others. According to Bitdefender, some areas of Ukraine experienced Internet outages, mostly associated with power failures and physical disruption of communication links, during Monday's Russian missile strikes. Bitdefender says, Data from Cloudflare indicated a 35% dip in Internet availability as multiple explosions caused power outages. Reuters reports that both electrical and communications services have largely been restored. Ukrainian officials credit Starlink with an important role in the swift recovery. The massive Russian cyber attacks almost universally expected when Mr. Putin went to war against his smaller neighbor back in February have not materialized. Apart from some early and quickly remediated successes with wiper malware in the opening days of the invasion, Russian offensive cyber ops have been largely confined to nuisance-level defacements and DDoS. Some acts of physical sabotage against European infrastructure followed by some recent dark musing by President Putin about how terrorism holds the globe's infrastructure at risk have again elevated concern about the possibility of a destructive Russian campaign that this time around might actually work as advertised. Mr. Putin's remarks are playing a double game in a double narrative. He'd like the world to think the sabotage, like the war itself, is the work of his present boogeyman and boogeywomen, those Anglo-Saxon British and the Americans. But he'd also like to remind the world that the sabotage could just as easily be Russian work and that their pipelines, telecommunications, or power grids could be next. An essay in Politico argues that subscribing to a narrative of fear with respect to Russian cyber attacks against infrastructure would be, in effect, doing the Kremlin's work. 
The essayists argue that energy infrastructure is an obvious target, but that the war so far has shown how effective cyber resilience can be in thwarting attacks. More to the point, there's the risk of disinformation and influence operations creating the appearance of an effective threat where there may in fact be none in the offing. To some extent, the failure of the bears, fancy, cozy, energetic, the whole cuddly ursine tribe, to show up in a big way may reflect the same sort of underperformance seen elsewhere in Russia's military operations. The U.S. Deputy National Security Advisor for Cyber, Ann Neuberger, outlined Russia's record in cyberspace during the war at a Washington Post conference this morning. So, defense can work with preparation, cooperation, resilience, and resolution. Shields up. Coming up after the break, Kevin McGee from Microsoft shares why cyber professionals should join company boards. Our guest is Chris Nickel from Okta with a look at identity shortfalls. Stay with us. Every day, your IAM tech debt grows. Your multi-generational services struggle to work together. Building an identity fabric can fix this. It makes all your identity tooling stronger and allows you to connect any app to any service you want to use with zero coding, zero maintenance, and zero app downtime. Strata's identity orchestration platform separates the identity logic from your applications so you can optimize existing IAM tools and manage them in a single control plane. Now, every vendor, standard, and architecture work together. In short, building your identity fabric means you can secure your non-standard apps, keep your complex access policies, retire outdated IDPs, and modernize in record time. So build your fabric with Strata Identity and get rid of tech debt for good. Visit strata.io slash cyberwire, share your identity priorities, and receive a pair of AirPods Pro. Offer valid for organizations over 5,000 employees. Connect today at strata.io slash cyberwire. The IT world used to be simpler. You only had to secure and manage environments that you controlled. Then came new technologies and new ways to work. Now, employees, apps, and networks are everywhere. This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business. The security strategy of zero trust has been gaining momentum, with some saying this year is a tipping point when it comes to widespread adoption. Security firm Okta recently published their 2022 State of Zero Trust report. Chris Niggle is Regional Chief Security Officer of the Americas at Okta, and I checked in with him for some highlights from the report. We've been generating the State of Zero Trust report since 2019, when we found that businesses were kind of discrediting the concept of zero trust networking. And what we saw was a real need 
for organizations to understand the importance of the adoption of this technology. Where are some of the common misconceptions that you see? Where, where, where is there an understanding gap here? I think the understanding gap is organizations see zero trust as another formative network change where they need to make kind of a big bang change in how they're approaching security. And really, zero trust is a journey. It's something that we're all working towards and really is an extension of the changes that we're seeing in a in the security posture right now of moving from on-prem to cloud technologies. What were some of the key findings in the report that caught your eye? Some of the key findings in this year's report were really focused on a significant increase in adoption of zero trust networking across organizations. Most significantly, we saw a huge jump in the adoption of zero trust networking by our government customers, driven, I think, primarily to the zero trust memo that came out. We've also seen a significant change in the adoption for healthcare, which I think is a very important change given the importance of that sector to all of our lives. Where do you suppose we're headed here? I mean, it it really seems like there's a lot of momentum behind this transition now. Dave, I think what we're seeing is that next step in adoption of cloud technologies. With the COVID pandemic, all organizations needed to make a very rapid change to different technologies, different capabilities to allow their employees to work from home. And with the zero trust adoption, we're now seeing organizations build the security controls back in that they need to have in order to make good use of those technologies. What is your response to folks who are still skeptical about the notion of zero trust? I mean, I I still, there are still folks out there who, when they hear the term, they kind of roll their eyes a little bit. The zero trust concept has definitely been a bit of a marketing buzzword over the last couple of years. And so my response to that would be to look at what the security needs are of your new working environment. As organizations adopt more cloud technologies, there's a need to move the security controls out to the users and to the data. And if you approach it that way, you're still addressing a zero trust network model, but you're doing that in a way that's providing direct benefit to your employees and your organization right now. What are your recommendations for organizations who are considering this journey here? I mean, what, where do you recommend they get started? We recommend organizations look at their identity and access management platforms. When we consider zero trust, the core components of that security model are understanding the access requirements of the users, of the devices, and of the data. And so identity is a key part of both the users and the device aspects of those three pillars. 
by starting with identity management, you're able to quickly build that first pillar of access and be able to do it in a way that provides immediate benefit to your employees, to your customers, to your users in giving them quick access to the things they need to do to complete their jobs every day. That's Chris Niggle from Okta. And joining me once again is Kevin McGee. He is the Chief Security Officer at Microsoft Canada. Kevin, always great to welcome you back to the show. Hi, Dave. Thanks for having me back. I want to touch today about the relationship between the cybersecurity pros and boards of directors, and and specifically, you know, those cyber folks getting a seat on the board. I, I know you have some thoughts on this. I know a lot of the discussion we have now is about, you know, how we should communicate to the board and whatnot as cybersecurity professionals. I think we're missing the opportunity to actually sit on the board as cybersecurity professionals. And I think the root of it is it's sort of like a grade eight dance. Someone's got to get it all started and and bring the two, uh, two sides together. So every board I talk to wants to have a cybersecurity professional on it. And every cybersecurity professional I talk to would love to be on a board, but there seems to be this mismatch and in, 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 um, in difficulty in, in bridging that gap that I'm really interested in figuring out how to solve. What do you think is going on here? I mean, I, I see from time to time, I, saw people, I see people say that uh, chief security officers, chief information security officers, they'll say they're chiefs in name only, that they have the title, but maybe not the, the status within organizations. Is, is there something to that? Well, it doesn't even have to be the board of the organization you're on. In fact, I think it's better if you you look at another um, alternative organization that you could be on, on a board of, either a charity or not-for-profit. Um, and in uh, Canada, hospitals have um, independent boards. Uh, startups have boards. It's a great opportunity to really not only expand your understanding uh, of how the business works so that you can have better conversations back in your day job, but also add some serious value to the discussions that are having uh, taking and taking place around the table because you can add a very unique perspective as a cybersecurity professional. And that's what I've really found, my, my sort of unique background. I'm the only person often that's not an accountant or a lawyer on the board. So I look at things very differently and can provide a, a very unique perspective. Um, and I was very intimidated at first because everyone else was an accountant and lawyer that I wouldn't be able to add some value. But that's not proven to, the, uh, to be the case. How do the other board members look at you and, and the things you can contribute? Well, again, I, I the first uh, time I showed up and I was very you know concerned about you know contributing and wanted to look smart in front of my peers. And I, I call this the current ratio epiphany. I was in an audit committee meeting and they were all talking about the current ratio and everyone seemed rather concerned, but it had been 25 years since I took financial accounting and I wasn't quite sure. So finally, at some point, I raised my hand and I said, "What what is the current ratio and should it be bigger, should it be smaller? And they took the time to explain to me. And had I not done that, I would have been acting on information that I didn't know. And why? Because I'm a type A and I didn't want to look dumb in front of my peers. And that's when it dawned on me. The accountants, the lawyers, when a cybersecurity issue comes up, same thing happens. They don't want to look dumb in front of their peers. So they're often acting on information or making decisions on information where they don't understand. And they're often afraid to ask the question. So having someone who with a technical background that can provide that context, that can be the, the coach and whatnot on the board can be, make all the difference to improving the performance of that board. And how do you suggest people go out and, and find these opportunities? 
Finding the first one's always the hardest. I tried five years to get on a board, and then um, once I finally got on a board, everyone wanted me on their board. Hmm. Um, so it's it can be difficult. It's much like getting that first job. So one, I think, is just educating yourself on what the role of, uh, of a board of director or trustee or, or, or governance uh, is really all about. And there's some great books online or some great um, you know free trainings you can uh, look at to do that. But understanding the role of the governor and then approaching an organization that you have a commitment or a connection to. Um, I'm on the board of trustees of my university where I graduated from. A great chance to give back as well, too. Um, and you have that deep connection uh, that makes it easier to make that first step. But really educating yourself and just going out and asking and seeing who really needs uh, some some help in those areas. Most boards have nominating committees, so finding out who the nominating committee chair, governance chair is, and having a, a coffee chat or a discussion with that person would be a great idea. Biggest thing is just don't be afraid to do it. I, like I said, I was so nervous walking into that room, I would have nothing to add, and it turns out I have a great deal to add. Imposter syndrome, I think, sometimes holds us back more than anything from achieving a, a seat on the board. All right, well, Kevin McGee, thanks for joining us. Are lengthy security reviews pulling attention away from your security program? With the largest network of trust centers, Vanta can help you streamline security reviews to win customer trust, save time, and close deals fast. Proactively demonstrate security by showcasing key resources like your SOC 2 or ISO 27001 and provide real-time evidence for passing controls. And when a security questionnaire is required, Vanta takes the first pass for you. Visit vanta.com slash cyber to take a self-serve tour. That's vanta.com slash cyber. And that's the Cyberwire. For links to all of today's stories, check out our daily briefing at thecyberwire.com. The CyberWire podcast is proudly produced in Maryland out of the startup studios of Data Tribe, where they're co-building the next generation of cybersecurity teams and technologies. Our amazing CyberWire team is Elliot Peltzman, Trey Hester, Brandon Karp, Eliana White, Peru Prakash, Liz Irvin, Rachel Gelfin, Tim Nodar, Joe Kerrigan, Carol Terrio, Maria Varmatsis, Ben Yellen, Nick Vilecki, Gina Johnson, Bennett Moe, Catherine Murphy, Chris Russell, John Petrick, Jennifer Iben, Rick Howard, Peter Kilpie, and I'm Dave Bittner. Thanks for listening. We'll see you back here tomorrow. And now, a word from our sponsor, Zscaler, the leader in cloud security. Cyber attackers are using AI in creative ways to compromise users and breach organizations. In a security landscape where you must fight AI with AI, the best AI protection comes from having the best data. Zscaler has extended its zero-trust architecture with powerful AI engines that are trained and tuned by 500 trillion daily signals. Learn more about Zscaler Zero Trust plus AI to prevent ransomware and AI attacks. Experience your world secured. Visit zscaler.com slash zero trust AI.